0: In philosophy, rationality is often thought to consist in acting for reasons, but following normative requirements is also a major part of rationality. John Broome, White's Professor of Moral Philosophy at the University of Oxford, gives an explanation of reason and rationality, and then discusses his understanding of the normative question.
1: Well, perhaps a thing to stress, since I'm a professor of philosophy, is that I do actually have a degree in philosophy, only a master's degree. But after I got my PhD in economics, I was lucky enough to have a year when I could work part-time and study philosophy, and I took a master's degree in philosophy then. So that's my only qualification in the subject of part-time masters that I did after my PhD. But I've always been interested in philosophy. In a way, I sometimes regret that I did economics at all. It happened more or less by accident when I was an undergraduate. Well, what happened was that I went as an undergraduate to Cambridge to do mathematics. And I think that the design of the maths course must have been not very good. And at any rate, I was pretty bored with it by the end of the first year. So I decided I'd change and do something else, which you can do in Cambridge after a year. And I was pretty much open to any subject. So I went around asking people about the merits of their subject and should I do it. And I did go and talk to a philosopher there. Uh, and I said, look, I'm a mathematician. I'm thinking of changing to philosophy. They called it moral sciences in Cambridge in those days. And he said, he said if you're thinking of doing that, this is what I recommend. I suggest you leave the university and you go get a job b- building roads for a few years. And that'll knock any idea of philosophy out of your head. And I thought, well, perhaps I won't do philosophy after all. And I discovered afterwards that what he was doing was just copying Wittgenstein. That's what Wittgenstein used to say to people who came to him and said, I'm thinking of doing philosophy. Because Wittgenstein wanted to stop people doing philosophy. In his later life, he reckoned that what should be achieved by philosophy is the ability to stop doing philosophy. So he was trying to stop people doing it, and he told them exactly that. So this person was copying Wittgenstein. Anyhow, I didn't. But instead, I went and I saw an economist, and he said, Oh, yes, you must do economics. You'll really enjoy economics. So I did economics. And I was then an economist for just under 30 years. I've worked as an economist from the time I became one as an undergraduate to when I got my first proper job in philosophy, which was 12 years ago now, 1996. How did you make that transition? Well, I told you I did get a degree in philosophy. Actually, it started when I was doing a PhD at MIT in economics. And MIT had a deal with Harvard where by MIT students who go to Harvard lectures. So I went to some Harvard lectures in philosophy because I thought it sounded like an interesting subject. And I went to some lectures on Wittgenstein by the most charismatic lecturer, someone called Stanley Cavell. And I didn't understand the lectures at all, but they were quite gripping. So I was fascinated. And I read Wittgenstein's investigations again and again and again. And I just loved that. So I thought I'd move into philosophy as soon as I could. And that took me to do the master's degree. But then I discovered that it's much harder to get work in philosophy than it is in economics. Uh, economics is a well-financed discipline. You know. There's money involved in it. So there are more jobs, there are more research grants and that sort of thing. So I just found myself able to get jobs there and not really qualified to teach philosophy. But I did write philosophical stuff within economics And it was sufficiently philosophical that, in the end, it made it possible for me to get a job in philosophy.
0: What is the relationship
1: between philosophy and economics? Oh, well, there there are quite a number of connections. The one that interested me was in ethics. Well, I keep saying to people that economics is basically a branch of applied ethics. Now, that isn't quite true, because there is some of economics, which is science. It's a social science. And so it's trying to figure out what happens in economies as a scientific matter, what causes what. But even the economists who are doing that are generally doing it with an eye to making things better, to improving things or changing the way that the economy runs. And that's the point of economics, really, is to make things happen better in the economic domain. So you've got to assess what's better and what's worse within that area, how ought things to be within the domain of economics. And when you're thinking about how ought things to be, especially when you're dealing with conflicts of interest, which is really the main... Economics is all about conflicts of interest. Um, It's about limited resources and how those are used, how those are best used, which is to say how they're best divided up amongst the various people who've got claims on them. It's all about conflicting interests, and it's about how things ought to be. So when an economist says the interest rate ought to be kept high... What that's doing is favouring the interests of some people against the interests of other people. And so it's clearly an ethical claim. It's a, a claim within applied ethics. So economics is basically applied ethics. And that means that if you work back to more fundamental questions in economics, you find yourself doing the same things as applied moral philosophers. For instance, you find yourself thinking about the value of equality. And moral philosophers think about the value of equality. I find myself thinking a lot about the value of human life, which, again, moral philosophers worry about. So the, the the questions are the same, that you're actually doing the same thing. Really, the only difference is the sort of methods you use. And economists are trained in mathematical methods, highly an- analytic methods, more than philosophers are. My view about those subjects, well, particularly about equality, actually, is that economists are better qualified to talk about the ethics of econo- ethics of equality than moral philosophers are, because it's a complex matter of the relations amongst large numbers of people. If you're thinking about equality in a society, that's involving huge numbers of people, and you're interested in the interactions of those people. And it takes some mathematics to do that properly, I think.
0: Don't you, economists and philosophers, approach some of these issues like fairness of distribution from very different founding premises?
1: Yeah, they they approach them from different directions, but in the end, their positions may converge. It's not universally true, because there are philosophers whose way of thinking is quite inimical to the way of thinking of economists. Economists tend to be, in a broad sense, utilitarians. What they're interested in is promoting the general good, as you might say. And there are moral philosophers who think really are not very interested in doing that. So it's utilitarian moral philosophers or the philosophers who are in the same camp as utilitarians. Utilitarianism is is a relatively narrow view within a much broader view, which we haven't really got a very good name for. Some people call it consequentialist. And the thinking of those people actually is really quite close to the thinking of economists. At any rate, the thinking of economists in the days when I used to do economics, uh, or the days when I first did economics, when there was a subject within economics known as welfare economics. Is is that a term that you've heard of? When it used to be an important part of economics, and it was really the part of economics that was explicitly ethical. The subject where you thought about what's the value of equality, how to measure the badness of the inequality in a society, that sort of thing. And And welfare economists did that. I might give you some names that you know. Um, uh, Kenneth Arrow, for instance, did that. Um, Amartya Sen did that. And those those people were the leaders working in the heyday of welfare economics, which was sort of 60s, 70s. And then it pretty much packed up. And economists really don't get taught it anymore, scarcely know that subject. So I think economics has gone backwards in that respect. Present economists are not, Really, in practice, very good at talking about the value of equality. But the people who did it in the 1970s were really pretty good at it. In a sense, you know, the prime example. Has your own research attempted
0: to remedy this then, bringing in economic principles to your philosophy?
1: Yes. At first, as an economist, I was interested in bringing philosophical pr- principles into economics. But I'd never been really very interested in economics. i have always been more interested in philosophy. So, but I do think that the methods of economics actually can contribute quite a lot to quite a number of areas within moral philosophy. And I've given you one. I've told you about the, the philosophy of, um, the moral philosophy of equality. Methods of economics can contribute huge amounts to that. And I think it's a disappointing that most of the philosophers who write about it haven't done their work in learning the, the work that economists have already done. Years ago, in the nineteen seventies, they did it.
0: So, what about your research as a philosopher? What areas of that is that on? Well,
1: in? it's it's changed now. I told you that I was interested in the value of life, and that's something that happened to me right from the beginning. My master's thesis, when I was doing a master's in philosophy, was on the value of life, and I was always interested in that. But it involved quite a broad range of issues as sort of preliminaries to it. So, I became interested in decision theory treatment of uncertainty as a preliminary to working on the value of life I wrote a book about that about equality uncertainty and time temporal matters Um, having done that then I came back that was a book called weighing goods and I came back to write a book called weighing lives which was supposed to be what I thought about the value of life so I did that and that was only a few years ago that got published but it took much longer than I thought and then I thought, i finished that. I'm not going to do that anymore. And I started doing other things since then. It hasn't been absolutely possible to concentrate just on the other things because the value of life is a practical issue. It makes a difference in practice to medical practice. And it's also a crucial issue in the ethics of climate change because what climate change the principal bad thing that climate change is going to do is kill a lot of people. So if you decide what's the right thing to do about climate change, you need to think about how bad is it that it's going to kill a lot of people. Um, And since I think climate change is an important issue, when people ask me to do stuff about climate change, I I do. So So I've still been doing some of that, but it's not what I'm really interested in. And now I do this stuff about rationality and normativity and reasoning. Can we reach a
0: very broad definition of what rationality means in philosophy?
1: What it should mean in philosophy is what it actually means. That's to say philosophers should mean by the word what people mean by the word. And the difficult thing is to figure out what people mean by it. So there are two approaches. You might start by thinking of what are rational people like? So that would be getting at the property of rationality that people have when they are rational. So, and you might think, for instance, rational people are people who have coherent beliefs. They they don't believe contradictions. If they believe a couple of things which entail a third one, then they'll believe the third one. They don't have contradictory intentions. They intend to do what's um, an appropriate means to an end that they intend, that sort of thing. So those are properties of people, and you could think, what's a rational person? And I think that's actually a perfectly good way of approaching the subject. But I don't... And and it does give you um, one meaning for the word rationality. You could say that rationality is the name of the property that people have when they're rational in the same way as there are moral people, and the property that they have when that a moral person has, we could call the property of morality. But I don't think that gets at all that rationality means. And we also think of rationality as one of a class of things that I don't know the name of, and I just call them sources of requirements, and I, and I can only illustrate what they what they are, and then you'll see what I'm getting at. So the law, for instance, is a source of requirements. What the law does is it issues a number of things that are required of you by the law. So it requires you to drive on the left if you're in Britain and that sort of thing. And each of those is a separate requirement. There's a requirement not to kill people. There's a requirement to drive on the left. There's a requirement to pay taxes and so on. A string of requirements, and those requirements are, as you might say, issued by the law. So the law is a source of requirements. And there are other sources of requirements. So, morality is a source of requirements. Morality requires you to be kind to strangers. And um, it also requires you not to murder people. Things of that sort. So, morality is like the law in that it's a source of requirements. And so is rationality. Rationality requires you not to have contradictory beliefs, to intend means to ends that you intend, things of that sort. So, it issues requirements. I can't say that this is what people in general mean by rationality, but that, I think, is the best way of where to approach rationality from, to recognize that rationality, like the law, is a source of requirements. And then you can say what a rational person is. What a rational person is, is somebody who satisfies the requirements that are issued by rationality. Similarly, a law-abiding person is somebody who satisfies the requirements that are issued by the law. So we've got the source of requirements, I call it rationality, it's often called reason. You can think of reason as one of these things that I don't know the name of. I sometimes think maybe you should call them a discipline or something like that. But at any rate, what they do is they issue requirements. Um, Reason issues requirements, I think reason is another name for rationality in that sense. And rational people are the ones who conform to the requirements of reason.
0: If one were to break any of these requirements, would that make them always immoral and always a lawbreaker?
1: Yes, you are a lawbreaker if you break a requirement of the law. You might not want to say that you're immoral if you infringe a minor requirement of morality. Uh, we, we think of immoral as, as a scale concept, and there are people who are more immoral than others. somebody somebody's just breaking one minor requirement of morality, you might not want to attach the word immoral to Well, I don't have to talk much about immoral people, so I I haven't decided what to do, how to use that, but I have decided that I will talk about anybody who infringes a requirement of rationality as irrational, but irrational often only in a very minor way, and everybody is irrational in this way. We all are infringing some of the requirements, and I don't really mind being irrational in that respect, but some people are more irrational than others. It seems to me that
0: the requirements are based on values, while the sources could be neutral.
1: Well, I'm not sure that these requirements are necessarily based on values. I said that there are a number of sources of requirements. I didn't say you have to obey any of them. And with any source of requirements, there's an issue of whether you've any reason to satisfy its requirements. So take convention. Convention is a source of requirements requires you if you shake hands to offer your right hand rather than your left hand to shake that's a rule of convention there's a real question have you any reason to do that and I think with any source of requirements there's a question have you a reason to conform to them now I think not a real live question in the case of morality you have a reason to conform to the requirements of morality it's very hard to explain why but I think you do I think it's more of an open question in the case of the law, have you any reason to conform to the law? A lot of people think, yes, you have, but it's not a very fundamental reason. It's an instrumental reason, that it's bad for you to break the law because you risk going to prison, shall we say. And so you've got a a reason to to conform to the law, but this is a reason that's founded on something more fundamental, namely prudence or self-interest. It's not in your interest to break the law. And... So you've got a reason of prudence or self-interest, which backs your reason to conform to the law. So prudence is another source of requirements, and that's one that I think few people doubt. Most people think that if prudence requires you to do something, you have a reason to do it. So prudence, for instance, requires you to look both ways before you cross the road, and because of that, you've got a pretty good reason to look both ways before you cross the road. I think most people believe that. Again, it's really hard to say why. With rationality, I'm pretty convinced you've a reason to be rational. But I can't explain why. That's something I'm stuck on. So that's something I believe, but I can't really justify. I think you've a reason to be rational. The main point is that for any source of requirements, there's a real live question. Have you a reason to set to do what that source requires?
0: So many of these alternative sources of requirements could be put under a umbrella of
1: rationality? Then No, I think they're all separate. I think morality, prudence, the law, convention, rationality, they're all separate sources of requirements.
0: But could they have the same requirement in some?
1: Oh, yeah. So the law requires you not to murder and morality requires you not to murder. So the same. And also, I guess that prudence often requires you to satisfy the requirements of rationality. If you have contradictory intentions, you'll not get very far in life. Rationality requires you not to have contradictory intentions. I expect prudence does as well. What about normative rationality? What I've just been talking about is what I call in a rather grand way the normative question, a term that I stole from Christine Korsgaard. The normative question about a source of requirements is the question, have you a reason to do what that source requires of you? What I mean by normativity, and I think what most moral philosophers mean by normativity, is to do with ought and reasons. That's the definition of normativity, as we mean it in moral philosophy. Other people, and that includes a lot of other philosophers, attach a quite different meaning to the word normative, and it's quite a good idea to get this clear at the beginning. What they mean by normativity is anything that has to do with norms. And what they mean by norms are rules of some sort and even requirements. So they would think that anything that issues requirements is normative. So they would think convention is normative. Convention issues rules. You can conform to those rules or not. It issues a standard of correctness, they sometimes say. You can behave correctly according to convention or incorrectly according to convention. And that's enough to make, according to this notion of normativity, convention normative. So any source of requirements is going to be normative under that meaning. That's not my meaning. It's not, I think, the meaning for most moral philosophers. But it is a source of confusion because you find even within philosophy, different philosophers using this word with different meanings. And I do think that has caused some confusion. Anyhow, so you were talking about normative rationality. What I said was, I think it's a real question whether rationality is normative. Do you have a reason to obey the requirements? Do you have a reason, just because it's a requirement of rationality, not to have contradictory intentions? Well, I think you do, but I can't prove it. I can't give an argument for why you do. Is that necessarily negative or positive? It bothers me less now than it did because other people have pointed out to me that this is a problem that's actually well recognised within moral philosophy and perhaps we shouldn't be so worried about it. Moral philosophers have spent a lot of time asking the question, why should you be moral? What reason do you have to conform to the requirements of morality, if you like? Most of us think you've got a reason, but to explain what that reason is is really quite difficult. And when moral philosophers have tried to do it, they generally failed. A lot of them try to do is explaining on grounds of self-interest. They think that it's obvious you've got a reason to do what's in your, your own interest. Given that that's obvious, they want to say you've got a reason to be moral because it promotes your interest. Lots of them have tried to do that, and they all fail. And it's sort of pretty apparent that they're never going to succeed. And one of my predecessors in my job, H. A. Pritchard, wrote a famous paper early in the 20th century, say, called Does Moral Philosophy Rest on a Mistake? And his point was, you can try to get blue in your face to do this and you're never going to succeed. You're never going to be able to explain why you have a reason to be moral. Because if you try and get a reason that comes from outside morality, it's Patently not going to work. If you're going to try and get a reason to be moral that comes from self-interest, it's obviously not going to be going to work because obviously often it's against your interest to be moral. That's a whole problem with morality. Your, morality requires you to do stuff that is against your interest to do. So that's that's uh, not going to work. And on the other hand, if you try and get a justification for being moral or a reason for being moral that comes from within morality, well, that's going to be circular because Any reason you find for being moral depends on you're already having a reason to be moral, if your reason comes from within morality, so it's not going to work that way. So Pritchard said, stop worrying about it. Now, I I don't think you can quite stop worrying about it, but I've started worrying about it less, since I've realised that it seems to me rationality is in the same boat as morality in this this respect. You can't, or I can't, find a good explanation of why you have a reason to be moral. And maybe we should just relax and not worry too much about that.
0: Are there going to be occasions when
1: being moral could be irrational? I hope not. No, I withdraw that. Yes, I can think of sort of extreme examples. I mean, they're concocted. I don't know whether there are any examples of like this actually occur in the world. But this is a fairly typical of a philosopher's sort of example. Suppose in some way or other things were rigged so that you could save the world from a nuclear war by... Having one pair of contradictory beliefs. It's hard to know how you could get yourself to do it, but suppose you could. Mm -hmm. Now, so the rule is this this has been set up by the devil, say. So the devil has arranged things and informed you of this such that if you believe a particular proposition P and you also believe the negation of that proposition, then there will be no nuclear war. But if you don't achieve that, then there will be a nuclear war. Now, I think that in those circumstances morality requires you to have those contradictory beliefs but that nevertheless if you did you would be irrational. Now I think I'm unusual amongst moral philosophers, more of them think that what morality requires of you is not that you have those contradictory beliefs but you should bring yourself to have those contradictory beliefs. It doesn't require you to have them. I can't see that really. If my mind is rigged so that what causes the nuclear war is my not having those beliefs, and what would prevent the nuclear war is my having the beliefs, it seems to me that morality requires me to have those contradictory beliefs, even if there's actually there's nothing I can do about bringing them about. So I think they're wrong about that. So there's the answer to your question. It is possible for morality to require you to do something when rationality requires you to do the opposite of that. Morality, in this case, requires you to have contradictory beliefs, where rationality requires you not to have contradictory
0: beliefs. So there's no hierarchy. But it's all cooked. Okay.
1: <laughs> Isn't, there's no hierarchy. Yet? Yeah, surely there's a hierarchy, yes. Because all of these requirements, if they're normative, feed into determining what you ought to do. You know, if morality requires you to do something, and prudence requires you to do something, and both of those are normative. That's to say, both of them give you reasons to do what they requires. This is a common case, where re- morality requires you to do something, prudence requires you to do the opposite. Both of those are normative, so you, know, you have a reason to do this, and you have a reason to do the opposite. Mm. Both of those things feed into determining what actually you ought to do, because what you ought to do is determined by the reasons you've got in the case. Here you've got conflicting reasons. What you ought to do is determined by the conflict. Now. Some people think morality always wins, so there's a hierarchy. Morality trumps Then prudence maybe comes next and rationality, I mean, I don't know what they think, lower down the hierarchy. I haven't got very firm views about that, but it doesn't seem to me totally plausible that morality always trumps. If it's a very minor moral infringement, but on the other hand, tremendously important to your life, I'm not sure that you oughtn't to do the minor moral infringement. I'm not sure that we should attach such importance to morality that even the least infringement of morality is more important than sacrificing your career or something like that. How do we decide on what the requirements are going to be in each of these sources? Yeah, very difficult. I don't know. Well, I'm I'm interested in rationality. I don't know how you decide what the requirements of rationality are. I'm... There are some people who have some theories about it, and I think I mentioned earlier that you can see some sorts of things that are going to have something to do with it. So logic is going to have something to do with it. I do think rationality requires you not to have contradictory beliefs. It must be something to do with the fact that contradictory beliefs can't both be true. If you believe P and you believe not P, it can't both be true that P and true that not P. So logic's going to underlie rationality. But the connection is not absolutely tight. So, I haven't got a firm view about this, but I wouldn't insist that rationality requires you all your beliefs to be consistent with each other. Of course, if you have beliefs that are not consistent with each other, one of them is going to be false. But you've got an awful lot of beliefs. It's really unlikely that all your beliefs are consistent with each other. There's a difference between inconsistent and being contradictory. Being contradictory, you've got two contradictory beliefs. If you believe something like, it's raining, and you also believe it's not raining. That, I think, is irrational. But you might have a whole bunch of beliefs from which you might be able to derive P, let it be Fermat's Last Theorem, shall we say. If you believe the axioms of arithmetic, as a matter of fact, from those axioms, you can derive Fermat's Last Theorem. But it's really hard to derive it. Now, suppose that you believe the axioms of arithmetic but you believe the negation of Fermat's Last Theorem, I'm not sure you're irrational. You've got inconsistent beliefs, but it's really hard to know that they're inconsistent. So you've got beliefs that cannot all be true. It can't be that Piano's axioms are true and Fermat's Last Theorem is false, because Fermat's Last Theorem follows from Piano's. So you've got beliefs that can't all be true, but I'm not sure that you're irrational. So all that's saying is that although logic must in some way underlie requirements of rationality, must be one of the things that underlies requirements of rationality. The connection between logic and requirements of rationality is not that tight. So I think it's really hard to figure out what the requirements are. And really, about the only instrument I've got for it, I'm sorry to say, is intuition. I start with some intuitions about what's irrational. So I think it's intuitively that it's irrational to have contradictory intentions, and then I work on that intuition and I refine it. Actually, that one I don't have to refine much. I just think straightforwardly it is. Rationality does require you not to have contradictory intentions. But take another one, which seems intuitively very attractive, that rationality requires you to intend means to an end that you intend. So if you intend some end or other, and something is a means to that end, rationality requires you to intend that means, I mean. Now, that's not a requirement as it stands. You can think of lots of reasons why it's not a requirement. For one thing, suppose that this is a means to the end, but you don't know that or you don't believe that. You've no idea that this is a means to the end. Then you're obviously not irrational if you don't intend the means. So the formula has got to be more like rationality requires you to intend what you believe is a necessary means to an end that you intend. But that isn't true either, because suppose you think, that although this is a necessary means to an end, to the end that you intend, suppose it's going to happen anyway. You don't have to do anything about it. Then you don't have to intend it either. You know, Suppose that you intend to go to France and you believe a necessary means is that there is some method of transport that will take you to France. You can't get to France without there being a method of transport that will take you there. You don't have to intend that there's a method of transport that will take you there because you believe there are trains running all the time. So you don't have to intend that and so on. And So you refine those things and you end up, well, in my experience, you end up with what you think. You think you've got it. You've actually formulated what the requirement is and then somebody points out in another counterexample and you have to do it all again. But it's intuition and refining your intuition until you've got something that looks reasonably watertight and you hope that it is. So what's the method
0: that philosophers use to examine this kind of thing?
1: Anything. Counter-examples is a pretty important one. So I told you you start with intuition. Then you notice that your intuition is wrong because there's a counterexample. example I just gave you two. You think that rationality requires you to intend a means to an end that you intend. Well, here's one counter-example. You might not believe it is a means. So you refine it. Then there's another counter-example. You might think that the trains are running anyway, so you don't have to intend that the trains run and so on.
0: Is it easy for laymen, people non-trained in philosophy, to use this kind of method to figure out rationality?
1: Yeah, if they've got the right temperament. So you've just got to be patient. Shall I tell you what my present formulation of what I call the instrumental principle is? And it's and it it involves some what are called schematic letters. So I'm talking about people, but I'm going to and I have to do this to get it correct. So I'll read it out to you. Rationality requires of N, and N is a letter standing for a person. All right. So it's just standing in for a person. Rationality requires of N that if one, N intends a T, T standing in for a time, that E, E standing in for a proposition that is an end, the end that N N intends. And N believes at T that if M were not so, because of that, E would not be so. And N believes at T that if she herself were not then to intend M, because of that, m would not be so, then, n intends at t that m. Now, that's quite sort of complicated to get your head around. I mean, I can explain it, and if you read it, and you spent some time working on it, you would get your head around it, all right? Anybody could do that. It's not not complicated mathematics or anything like that. But it does require some patience to work your way through all that formulation. And there are things in there that you would miss unless they were, sort of advertised, like there's what, what's called a reflexive pronoun in there. There's a reflexive pronoun, uh, she herself, which is playing an important and crucial role. What that means... I'm going to give it, I perhaps I can give you an example of that. It often makes a difference when you believe something about yourself, whether you directly can refer it to yourself or whether the way that you believe it is not so direct. So if I say say something using the first person pronoun, I, then that means I am making a self reference. I'm referring to myself. So if I say, I mustn't drink tonight, that's a self referential belief. And you in reporting it would say, John believes that he mustn't drink tonight. And if you wanted to emphasize it, John believes that he himself mustn't drink tonight. But now imagine this rather unusual situation, typical of the way that philosophers think. Suppose I believe that the occupant nearest the window in a room in the corner of the Fellows Building in Corpus Christi College mustn't drink tonight. But for some, because I've had a memory lapse, I don't realise that I am in fact the person nearest the window in the corner office of Corpus Christi College. So I couldn't say, I mustn't drink tonight. What I could say is that the person who's in this position mustn't drink tonight. That person happens to be me, but I'm not in a position to say that I mustn't drink it tonight. So you might say of me, John believes, you might say, John believes that he mustn't drink tonight. But you couldn't say, John believes that he himself mustn't drink tonight, because the he himself is the pronoun that you use in indirect speech to stand in for I when I use it in direct speech. Well, that's all in there. I mean, that's got one of those, it's called a reflexive pronoun, and it's in there, and it's in there for a purpose. So, you know, it took a while for me to realise that it had to be in there. But the formula comes out really complicated when you've got to it. And all you need is patience, but I think most lay people are not sufficiently patient to do that.
0: So without the patience, you'd be relying on intuition?
1: I think that people are naturally rational. It's just part of our nature to a fair degree, that we're rational. This is actually one of the things that I'm interested in and find the hardest. I think I understand what rationality is. I understand the idea of rational requirements. I can even say what some rational requirements are. How we come to be rational, I can say a few things about, but I think it's actually really quite interesting, and I and I st- stuck in some aspects of it. One part of how we come to be rational is what I just said, that we're naturally rational. It's just in your nature that you don't have many contradictory beliefs. I bet you've got some, which, you, I mean, as soon as you realise you've got them, they will go. But your mind sort of comes in department. So if you're thinking about something, you might believe one thing. And if you're thinking about a quite different range of things, you might actually think exactly the opposite, I did find myself in a position like this when I used to have a garden and I was dealing with weeds. Now, I had a weed killer, which didn't kill grass, but it would kill broadleaf plants. It was one of these selective weed killers. So you could get rid of weeds in grass by pouring the weed killer about. And if it landed on a weed, it would kill it, but it wouldn't kill the grass. Now, I found while I was doing that, I was reasonably confident that just getting one drop of weed killer onto a weed would kill it. I thought that one drop of weed killer on a plant that isn't grass would kill it. On the other hand, when I was going near the flower beds, there would sometimes be splashes, and a splash would go onto one of the plants in the flower bed. and I, being an optimistic sort of person, I would often generally believe it would survive, it wouldn't kill it. So I, in that case, I believed that one drop of weed killer on a plant that wasn't, a gra- wasn't grass wouldn't kill it. So there were two contradictory beliefs that I had. Now, I think we, we've all got those. But on the whole, we've got a mechanism that stops that from happening often. So for instance, suppose you're sitting and working and it was raining when you started working, you might still continue believing it's raining. So you believe it's raining while you're working. And then you look up and you look out of the window and you see it's not raining. So now you believe it's not raining. Now there's an automatic mechanism within you that switches off your belief that it's raining. As soon as you believe it's not raining, you don't believe it's raining anymore. So you don't have the contradictory beliefs that it's raining and that it's not raining at the same time. Some innate mechanism just switches off the contradictory beliefs. So that's a lot of how you come to be rational. But that doesn't work perfectly. If you were an angel or something, I think it would work perfectly and you would never have contradictory beliefs or you would never be irrational in other respects. You'd never have contradictory intentions. But you do sometimes because you're not ideal. And then I think we have a self-help mechanism which allows us to overcome those irrationalities by concentrating on them and sorting them out. And that's a process called reasoning. And I'm interested in how that process works. So I think of reasoning as a self-help process that we undertake. It's something that we can do to improve our rationality. And how reasoning works is the thing that I'm just happening to do at the moment, and I find it appallingly difficult. Philosophers, have uh, for a long time, made a distinction between what they call theoretical reasoning and what they call practical reasoning. Theoretical reasoning involves beliefs and beliefs only. So theoretical reasoning is reasoning that concludes in a belief. Actually, that's an oversimplification. Sometimes it concludes in a non-belief. You might think that the most straightforward sort of practical reasoning is believing a proposition. Let, Let me give an example. You believe that it's raining. You believe that if it's raining, the road will get wet. And you reason your way to believing the road will get wet. That's reasoning by a process of an application of modus ponens. It's the logical principle that takes you from, from P, and if P, then Q, to Q. And I think we have a process of reasoning that goes that way. But there might be something that stops you believing the road will get wet. Maybe you know perfectly well that the road won't get wet somehow or other. Maybe you think there's an awning over it so that it won't get wet. Now in that case, your reasoning can't go through. You believe it's raining, you believe that if it's raining the road will get wet, but you don't believe it the road will get wet. Something else has got to happen. And what might happen is that you stop believing that if it's raining the road will get wet. If you think there's an awning over the road, you shouldn't believe that if it's raining the road will get wet, because the awning will prevent the rain getting on the road. And your reasoning may take you to stop believing that conditional proposition that if it's raining the road will get wet just as well as it might bring you to start believing a new proposition, namely that the road will get wet. But that's all theoretical reasoning. So theoretical reasoning is reasoning that concludes either in believing something or in not believing something. That's, that's my definition of it. Practical reasoning, on the other hand, is reasoning that concludes in intending something or possibly in stopping intending something, not intending something. Now, I think it's relatively easy to understand how theoretical reasoning works it's really difficult to understand how practical reasoning works, I think. So on the face of it, there is intuitively quite, quite straightforward examples of practical reasoning. So here's one. Suppose you intend to go to Venice, and you believe that you won't get to Venice if you don't buy a ticket. But at the moment, you don't intend to buy a ticket. You know, this could quite easily happen. You intend to go to Venice. This has been at the back of your mind for quite a long time. And you suddenly realise that if you don't get a ticket now, you won't get to Venice. But at the moment, you don't intend to get a ticket. But here is how you can get yourself to intend to get a ticket. You can say to yourself, I'm going to Venice. If I don't buy a ticket, I won't go to Venice. So I'll buy a ticket. And now you've got an intention of buying a ticket. Now, that seems intuitively to me quite a straightforward piece of practical reasoning. You start off with the intention of going to Venice and a belief that you won't get there unless you buy a ticket. And now you've given yourself an intention to buy a ticket, which you didn't previously have, and you'll go off and buy it. Does it seem okay to you? I mean, that seems intuitively quite a decent example of practical reasoning. You find examples of that sort in Aristotle. But it's hard to explain how that works. Because, for one thing, what you say to yourself is just a sequence of assertions. You say, I'm going to Venice, asserting that you'll go to Venice. If I don't buy a ticket, I won't go to Venice. That's an asserting a conditional proposition, that if I don't buy a ticket, I won't go to Venice. And then you end up asserting you'll buy a ticket. You say, so I'll buy a ticket. So you're asserting that you'll buy a ticket. And normally in this, what an assertion is, is an expression of a belief. It's not an expression of an intention. If you assert something, you express a belief in it. You don't assert something sincerely unless you believe the thing that you're inserting. So what's going on? This appeared to be practical reasoning because it was bringing you to a new intention. But in fact, the things you say are asserting beliefs all the time. Well, I think that's because when you say I'll go to Venice you're doing two things you're both expressing your belief that you'll go to Venice which you you can do by asserting that you'll go to Venice you're also expressing your intention of going to Venice and in fact that's the canonical way the way we normally express intentions is just by saying that we'll do the thing that we intend if you were thinking of having dinner at home you'll say I'm having dinner at home or I'll have dinner at home tonight That's you're expressing your intention of having dinner at home tonight. It's also expressing a belief that you'll have dinner at home tonight. So you're expressing, generally when you express an intention, you're expressing two things at once. And that means that that bit of practical reasoning that I went through is not just a bit of practical reasoning, taking you from intending to go to Venice to intending to buy a ticket. It's also a bit of theoretical reasoning, taking you from believing you'll go to Venice to believing you'll buy a ticket. So the theoretical and the practical are intimately entwined in that process of reasoning. That's, I think, perhaps the main difficulty in understanding how practical reasoning works. Because, well, what happened to me happened to me when I started trying to figure out how that bit of practical reasoning worked, is that actually, in a way, the practical bit of it came out as a byproduct of the theoretical reasoning, because there is very Decent, really pretty incontrovertible theoretical reasoning that goes from I'm going to Venice, if I don't buy a ticket, I shan't go to Venice, to the belief that you'll buy a ticket. That is straightforward modus ponens reasoning. Nobody really can deny that that's a decent piece of theoretical reasoning. The practical reasoning turns out to be a byproduct of that perfectly decent piece of theoretical reasoning. And that feels wrong. It feels wrong to say that when you're reasoning practically with intentions, that's just something that falls out of theoretical reasoning. In particular a philosopher of action, Michael Bratman, keeps going on at me about that. He says it's just too cognitive, as he put it. My account of the practical reasoning is just too cognitive and I think he's right. It doesn't feel right. On the other hand, it's the best I can do and sometimes I think well it is right, however, wrong it feels one of the problems in in practical philosophy moral philosophy that you end up with conclusions that are really hard to believe